This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Well, welcome to Leadership in Action. This, of course, is Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm going to be flying on my own for the next few minutes with John Chambers, a special guest that we have this hour. I think most uh, listeners will know of John. He is now the CEO and founder of what's called JC2 Ventures. We'll be talking about that. But you probably know him above all for his more than 20 years with Cisco Systems, 20 years as CEO, a chairman and executive chair. In fact, <clears throat> he's written a book which provokes our conversation with him today. It's a great book. I read it called Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World, in which John shares his own experience, business principles, going all the way back to his days in West Virginia. John, great to have you on the program. Mike, it's a pleasure. It's fun for our uh, courses to interact again. Uh, looking forward to it. And by the way, I want to start by thanking you for being a, a professor and a teacher. It, it's what I'm trying to do now in a little bit different role. All right, well, John, well, thank you on that. I uh, appreciate uh, your comments on that. And I certainly want to just uh, offer my general appreciation for all that you have done to guide Cisco over two decades, more than two ca- decades from the kind of startup it was when you came there to this uh, enormous company that's been one of the great successes of the era. John, having said that, I'd like to go back to your origins. And in your book, you describe with great pride and some nostalgia your days in uh, West Virginia. So let's uh, begin with that. And we'll work a little bit chronologically for a while on how you got from there to Cisco and now JC2 Ventures. So back to West Virginia. Sure. Mm. Well, my uh, parents were in medical school at Case Western Reserve, and uh, uh, then I was uh, uh, raised in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, my mother uh, was a psychiatrist in uh, internal medicine, and dad was an OBGYN who delivered about 6,000 babies and about a fourth of them for free. Uh, they both together uh, supported dual career paths at a time that Canley General Diversity was not as accepted uh, in the world as it, it, as it needed to be. And mom drilled that into my head, as you would expect from the very beginning. She was an athlete, valued joining of our classes, uh, uh, did very, very well, and dad was very, very good at business. Uh, I started the book at the very beginning talking about I learned so many lessons from my dad about life and about West Virginia. And I uh, was fishing with him when I was six years old in a pretty rapid area of a river called Elk River. And, and he was upstream from me, and he told me, do not get too close. You could fall in, and the rapids are very dangerous here. Uh, but that's where you catch the fish, too. And, of course, what did I do? I got too close and fell in. And he came yelling at me as I was getting plummeted down the rapids and getting my head barely above water. And I was thinking, I'm in real trouble. And he was yelling, hold on to the pole, hold on to the fishing pole. And well, if he was yelling at me to hold on to the fishing pole, I clearly grabbed that pole with both hands. It was kind of an ugly pole, maybe $5. But he wanted me to hold on to it, so I focused on the pole as opposed to panicking about being in the water or trying to fight against the rapids, which you couldn't have done. And while I got knocked around pretty good, he got down below me and swam out and got me, brought me over to the side and set me down and said, you know, and here's why lessons learned. 
in life you're going to get caught in tough situations, some of them life-threatening. And if you make the mistake of panicking, trying to swim against the tide or the current, or doing something uh, that is not going to result in the outcome you want, you risk really setbacks or even death in it. And he walked me through that and taught me how important it was to be very calm, which served me the rest of my life. And then he didn't tell mom this, but he put me back in the exact spot where I fell in and let me go through it again and learn how to handle it. Ironically, a young man who was a friend of my younger sister's uh, died in that spot almost 16 years yeah. later. He was a much stronger person than I would have been as a swimmer, but probably no one was there to uh, remind him to hold on to the pole. Well, John, good thing you hang on, hung on to the pole. We appreciate that. And you do tell the—you um, give the account early in the book of how West Virginia had been a, really a powerhouse, uh, a place of manufacturing— and gradually those manufacturing jobs uh, withered to all the forces that we're well familiar with. And you offer up the thought that West Virginia might have well reinvented itself and, in fact, is doing that just now. But I think that gave you an early lesson on the importance of uh, savoring what you have and making certain you're ready for the next era. So pick up on that, if you would. Sure. And I, I think you've hit one of the most important points that I tried to share in the book is that you either disrupt or you want to get disrupted. Uh, the way to get into trouble the quickest is keep doing the right thing for too long. We were the chemical center of the world, FMC, Carbide, DuPont, 6,000 engineers in Charleston, West Virginia, most smart, brilliant people in the whole industry. And uh, we were also the coal industry uh, uh, center for the Americas. And uh, yet, because we didn't change, we got left behind. And great people, but our political leadership and our business leadership let us down. And so I've learned that when the, that occurs, you've got to get ahead, understand the transitions, good and bad, and then see what do you do next. You're very familiar with MIT, Boston, Route 128 that goes around it. It was the Silicon Valley of the world. And MIT produced 25% of the companies I bought at Cisco for the first decade I bought. Interesting enough, almost none for the next decade that I bought. But what happened was they kept doing the right thing too long with many computers. They didn't transition to PCs and the Internet. Uh, the venture capitalists were the best in the world, but yet most of them went out to Silicon Valley. And uh, as a result, DEC disappeared, 106,000 jobs. Wang disappeared, 32,000 jobs. Data General, I could go through one after the other. So I'd watch this occur. And so what I wrote the book about is connecting the dots. If you connect the dots right, you can see trends before they're obvious. And then you've got to have the courage to be bold and to go for them. That's what I saw on the Internet, and that's what I saw with Cisco. And we took it from 400 people to created 75,000 jobs, uh, took it from a, a company that was $70 million in sales to $48 billion, most valuable company in the world at a point in time. And we built a company that wasn't just writing a product but literally writing a series of products brought together. And so that really served us very, very well. And it, it's the lessons learned that I try to teach in that book because as I wrote the book, I did it because I was getting the same questions around the world all the time. John, the uh, lifelong learning of, I love the phrase, disrupt or be disrupted, the lifelong deeper appreciation for that came through, I know, some very personal experiences initially after your MBA from Indiana University at IBM and then Wang Instruments subsequent to that. So going back to your days with IBM and then Wang, just talk through what what you learned from those two experiences now that are 
in a sense, the roots of disrupt or be disrupted? They are. Uh, it, IBM, uh, the company, was the best-run company, I think, in the world at a point in time, and clearly the company that dominated, and I mean dominated all of IT, and should have continued to do so. But they failed to see the changes moving from uh, mainframes into what was then many computers and then the PC, Internet Air, and they didn't reinvent themselves either as leadership or company strategy. And the day I decided to leave IBM was one where my manager was giving me a review, and he said, John, you're on a fast track. You're, um, you're going to go a long way in this company, but uh, I want you to do two things differently. I want you to, uh, instead of doing ten things and maybe not getting the last two done well, I just want you to do three. And secondly, you give criticism back to the company about what we have to do differently. They don't want to hear that. And uh, that was the day I decided to leave. We, you've got you've to be bold. But secondly, when a company won't listen from criticism from its customers and just tells you, no, go sell this because that's how you get paid, uh, they clearly have lost their leadership. Wang was different. Wang, Dr. Ann Wang, smartest man I ever met in my life. Mike, you would have loved him if you ever met him. He was just an honest, good person. He invented magnetic core memory walking across the Harvard yard. And I know you went to Harvard and Michigan and, and now teach at Wharton. But he invented the whole concept that allowed the industry to grow off of on zeros and ones. And then he transitioned his company for 32 years and didn't miss a beat, but he missed just one. To the internet, and I—I I was the only uh, non-Chinese ever to run uh, the Asia Pacific region for him because we were so strong in China. And he did that out of trust with me, so I had a great relationship with him. And actually, he was his tennis opponent when we played tennis together. Hmm. But when I tried to share with him my views on the PC and the internet, it's the only time he got mad at me, and his hand was shaking. He had already built a PC three to four years before that, but he built one without applications. And I said, Dr. Wang, we're going to crash and burn and uh, because I had seen the movie. So that allowed me to change at Cisco. Probably one of the best compliments I got out of a competitor who was often very tough on me. Uh, you'll probably recognize it, Dutch background. But he was critical of me openly and, and at times fairly so. But he gave me a compliment at the World Economic Forum. He said, John, I want to congratulate you on – how well you've reinvented yourself and Cisco over the last 15 years. And that was about five years before I, I moved out of the, the CEO role. And I said, that's why I believe that CEOs need to be in their position more than five years. And then he laughed yeah. and said, we're disagreeing again. He said, most CEOs cannot reinvent themselves. You clearly have. And he says, I do not. He said, that's why you see me move companies every four to five years. I use my experience, my lessons learned, et cetera. And he could see I wasn't buying it. And then he said, out of your top 100 execs, how many of you have you ever kept in the same role for more than four years and been happy? And he had me. Yep. Only yep. one. Great point. Great and point. it speaks to how to reinvent yourself. And you must. And if a CEO can't do it, she or he can't stay in the role for 10 or 15 years uh, on it. First, it's a, it's a tough role and getting tougher in terms of the pressure. But mainly, you've got to reinvent yourself and the company, which means you've got to undo some of your basic things that made you successful from before. Keep doing the right thing yep. too long is a recipe for failure. John, thank you, Annette. I just want to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. 
And we are in conversation with John Chambers, now former chair and CEO of Cisco Systems and currently founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures. John, let's keep the chronology going. You came over to Cisco uh, as uh, Wang Instruments was uh, uh, still viable, but um, heading for uh, uh, ultimately failure there. John Morgrich was the CEO as you came in. And on this issue of reinventing yourself, uh, just talk a little bit, if you would, about John's uh, guidance of you in that regard and, and how you work with him and what he brought to the table that you then sought to emulate as well. Well, a, a number of things. If you, you watch, we were 400 people, and uh, John knew his strengths, and he had done an amazing job of pulling together a very, very diverse leadership team uh, that uh, got the results well, even though they, they at times didn't like each other. Uh, John got them to play together as a team, and he also got the company to focus on corporate uh, social responsibility in a big way. He's he's given away most of his money that he made at Cisco, and before he really cares about corporate social responsibility. And when he hired me, he said, "John, I've I've reached what I've need to do here in my skill sets. I need the next CEO for Cisco to take us to the next level." So he he knew what he was good at, and he knew when at the time was mm-hmm. to pass the baton. Uh, however, my first day on the job, uh, I went into my, quote, office, and there was no room, and they put me in a wearing phone closet. And I'm sitting there, and I'm about to give my wife a call, Elaine, and say I've made a terrible mistake. And it, people were not very organized. They were running around every which way. And all of a sudden, a customer complaint came in. I took the call, talked to the customers, so I went down to my customer services group to figure out what we were doing wrong, and I found out what it was, and <laughs> there wasn't one. Mm. <laughs> there were three people over in the corner underneath a penguin blow-up, uh, and we were not focused on how do you really drive customer success and how do you, you do this in a sustained way. And, candidly, from that point on, I never looked back, and it worked out to be a great decision. And it was one that matched my skills and my talent and the tremendous credit to John Mortgage of understanding when the time was right to change mm. and, and why a different skill set was needed to take the company from 400 people to 75,000. John, let's uh, keep the, the timeline intact for a few more minutes and think about – some of your thoughts, if you can reconstruct them now, when you are asked to become John's successor. So you're taking over a firm, still nothing uh, nothing to the scale that you then concluded your time with Cisco. But at the time, it was more than a startup. So uh, was it was it daunting? Was it uh, exciting? Maybe all the above and a few other adjectives probably come to mind. No, it, you know, and I've managed 10,000 people before. And I'd turn around operations uh, at Wang, and even though at IBM at lower levels, I'd, I'd had the good fortune to to build very strong teams. Uh, and the way that I got phased in is I got half the company initially, and by the time the transition occurred, I had everybody reporting to me. So mm-hmm. we didn't miss a beat, and that's a lesson learned about transitions uh, turnover. Uh, I was on to the next chapter. I'd already written – uh, that you know, we were going to change the world, the way the world works, lives, learns, and plays, because we're synonymous with the Internet. 
I had moved us from a, a router company into switching into architectures. We'd built a very good team, and uh, I'd learned from my mistakes of the past and other companies' mistakes of the past, and and overall that you have to move and you have to transition the company. So I was ready, and and part of the advantage to being a young leader at times is sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Most of the times I do, but uh, if I'd known how hard acquisitions were going to be and how challenging it would be to grow in Cisco, I might have hesitated a little bit more. But I was ready, and I, I was chomping at the bit to go. It's great. The one of the final chapters of your book is, uh, I think, the approximate title is "Reinventing Yourself." But before we get to that, yes. let's let's reinvent the company through ourselves. And maybe it's implicit in the title. In fact, I think it's explicit in the title, "Connecting the Dots." So, for somebody listening who would like to reinvent themselves, and then the company, uh, above all, right now, the company. What are some of the steps that you'd recommend from your own tangible experience? Well, the first thing is that you focus on transitions, both business models and technology in the market, not on competitors. By the time you see an Amazon coming at you, uh, you've already missed the early part of the, the transition of retail moving to the Internet. And so I always focus on transitions. I am 100% customer-driven. There was only one Steve Jobs, and it even took Steve seven years to build products that that uh, it would not be obvious to the consumer until they used them what the benefit would be. I didn't have those skills at all, but I was very good at listening to customers, and they would tell me who I needed to buy, what was working, what's not. I built I build relationships for life, which is one of the chapters in the book. People don't understand how important that is. I can go back to any customer I've ever sold to, and they trust me. Any political leader I've interfaced to, and they trust me. But in today's world, a currency of a leader is track record, mm -hmm. trust, and relationships. And yet people miss how important that is in terms of how you move forward. Then what you do is you combine technology transitions with business models. So I didn't sell routing and switching. I sold the Internet's going to transform your business. We did it as an example ourselves. And you take complex topics, i.e. this network of, of devices connected with really smart people and very difficult to use products, and you take the complexity out and just say it's going to change every aspect of your business, and here's how you do it, and here's the company that will help you do it. That's what I try to teach the startups that I interface to today is what is their leadership in security? Uh, how is their product different? Uh, how do they position the company for the short and long term? How do you build in culture very early? How do you evolve the leadership team? And how do you become a great communicator? Because of the Jack Welch heirs that people might remember in the 70s and 80s, brilliant strategist and visionary, uh, very good about getting transitions right, number one or number two, or don't compete. Uh, but mm. communications was not his strength. Today's yep. world, communications has to be. You got to listen to social media. You got to listen to your employees. Communications was available, what, three years before on Twitter that a large bank on the West Coast was having major bogus account issues, yet nobody was listening to the customers in the right way and social media, et cetera. So it's reinventing yourself and how you use these technologies to go forward. The negative is you remind people you will be hmm. left behind remarkably quickly. You know, and the number I like to use on that, what Walmart took 21 years to get passed by Amazon in terms of the value of the company on Wall Street. Tesla moved past GM in 14. Mm -hmm. Uber 
asset sharing, automotive consumption, move past Tesla in seven. The next transitions will occur in four. It's going to be brutal in terms of how quickly they occur. So you better change. And then the message for our country is large companies will not create incremental new jobs. Uh, between yeah. automation and digitization, it's going to destroy, I, I think you'd probably agree with me, 20 to 40 percent of the jobs that exist today. If we don't ramp the startup engine up to a much higher level, you remember in the 90s we took, what, 400 to 700 companies public per year uh, and created, what, 22.5 million jobs in 8 or 10 years, 24 uh, percent growth in real per capita household income. Today, the number of startups, we're excited that it might mm. be 230 to 250 this year. Yep. We will not generate 25 million jobs, much less replace 10 to 15, unless we get our startup engine going again across the country and get it geographically mixed. It just can't be the Northeast and the West Coast with a little bit in Texas. It's got to go across all states. Yep. Let's go back to Uber and Amazon. You referenced them in passing. And, of course, Travis Kalanick at Uber and then, of course, Jeff Bezos at Amazon – they set forward the the agenda, but of course, to say the totally obvious, they couldn't do most of the uh, direct heavy lifting themselves. You have to do that through your leadership team. John, a question for you on picking people for your team. I'm guessing, I think I'm right on this, that one of the most important sets of decisions you made was around who you put on your top team with this startup mindset. Uh, kind of uh, maybe an essential, almost a precondition for bringing people in. That said, here's the question. What were a couple of the indicators to you as you're looking at or maybe even interviewing one candidate after another that they were the kind of person that could bring that, that mindset that you were looking for to forever being a startup? A great series of questions. Uh, you can never be a great leader without an even greater leadership team around you. In fact, the best way to be a good leader is to have a great team that mm -hmm. functions as a team. And you have to lead them. You're the lead dog on the sled, so your team's not going to run faster than you do, but you run too fast, they'll break down on you. And if I watch the leaders up in place at Cisco, uh, they are names in the industry across the board today. I, mm -hmm. I, I would imagine, shoot, in the last four years, just the people that have come out in the last four years, you've got... 20 or 30 CEOs of companies. And so much like was built at GE, our leadership team, once they left the company, has done extremely well. But while I was CEO, I didn't lose players. You could say out of our top 100, which varied every year, our attrition rate as a company, total voluntary attrition was 5%. Uh, industry average 12 to 15 in Silicon Valley. Uh, acquisitions, 20% uh, of the leaders leave within every year for the five years after an acquisition is done. We averaged four. My top leaders, I might have lost five out of my top 100, which over 20 years might be five or 600, uh, that it wasn't time for them to leave. So I held on to talent very, very well, created a family environment. We played very, very high stakes, and we played for it all. Uh, yet, uh, I never raised my voice in 25 years of leadership at Cisco. Didn't need to. Hmm. Uh, but that family power was what allowed us to beat many of our competitors, and most of them are gone. I mean, names that 
won't mean a lot to your listeners, Wellfleet, uh, Synoptics, Cabletron, which were every bit as good as Cisco. I wouldn't have said it at the time, but they were product-wise and routing and switching uh, are completely gone. And then your next generation of big players that came at us, the Nortels, the Luca, uh, Lucents of the world, even the Intels or Dells that came at us, HPs, we broke away from them as well. And that was that leadership team that allowed it to occur, that healthy paranoia that you either disrupt or you're going to get disrupted an ability to dream and know that when you dream and you take risks, there are going to be failures, and when the failures occur, you're going to get criticized. No matter how mm. many times you tell them, one time out of three acquisitions will fail. When Flip failed, they beat me up on it. That's fair. But the other two acquisitions that year, which were $2 billion and a $3 billion acquisition, both were successful, and Flip was $600 million. point I'm sharing with your listeners is you've got to dream, and leadership will be lonely. Shimon Perez taught me that, especially during the tough times. And that's where you're going to learn, as some of the Silicon Valley companies are now having to learn how good you are or not. You will never have a great company, as Jack Welch taught me, until you have a near-death experience. And you come back from it. Most companies, however, do not come back. Uh, John, I'm going to use that last reference to Jack Welsh and what he said to you after the uh, the meltdown of 01 and 02, the Internet uh, going sort of into uh, outer space with the enormous rise of a whole range of Internet startups. And then the market came crashing down. And it's in your book. And I think it's actually uh, it's been known quite well known for some time that as you went from, I think, an 80% growth rate one year to a minus 40% contraction rate the next year. Uh, that was indeed a moment. So the question for after the break, we're going to take a, a couple minute break here just to gather our uh, okay. <laughs> gather our thinking and, and give the station a time to identify itself. I'm going to come back and pick up on a, a really important line in your book. You offer it several times, and that is you often learn more from setback adversity than from growth and success. So, John, uh, stay with me. I want listeners to stick with us. We're going to be right back. This, of course, is Sirius, uh, Sirius XM, Channel 132, Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Sounds good, Mike. Anything you want to do differently, or are you comfortable with the way it's going? Uh, this is great, and the pace is uh, terrific, along with the content. So okay. thank thank you. You've done this before a couple okay, times, I know. Yeah, but, but I know your audience, and I know how you think, and that makes it so much easier. Okay, well, thank you, Annette. I've come to appreciate a lot about how you think from your book. By the way, it is really terrific. I read it in, in details. So thanks for putting all that thank in you. black and white. I will send you an autograph version of it. I want, want with some comments on it if, if uh, your team will give us to your, your mailing address, and they'll, they'll be back to them. Yep, we will do that uh, for sure. So I think we are set to roll. You're going to, I think, hear some music. But and I, I want to... yours on learning from catastrophes. If uh, okay. I will... For me, in the Indian way, I'd like to get a copy of both of them. I'll swap books. we got a deal. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. Leadership in Action. That is us. Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm your host, director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management here at Wharton. I'm faculty director for the McNulty Leadership Program. We are in um, ongoing discussion with John Chambers, founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures Now. 
and former chief executive officer of Cisco Systems. We've been talking with John about his new book, Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. And, John, to pick up where we were just before the break, I was asking about uh, Jack Welsh's interesting guidance to you that having gone through the crisis of 0001 and 02, that now, it's an ironic statement, having gone from an 80% growth to a 35 to 40% shrinkage, you're now really ready to lead. So what did Jack mean by that, and how did you interpret it? Well, it was interesting. The, the way he meant it, uh, he was ahead of me in terms of what would the future would be. And there have been a couple of leaders I've met in life that, that have seen that movie and know how to interpret it. But what he was telling me in the mid-90s, uh, 95 through 97 or 8, GE was benchmarking us regularly, and they learned from other companies. And candidly, they saw we used the Internet ourselves better than anyone else did, and we could teach each other. Great partners for us. But he said, John, uh, you've got a very good company. And I knew he was baiting me, and I said, Jack, <laughs> I thought I had a great company. We're about to become the most valuable company in the world, and I've got the best team. Uh, what am I missing here? And he said, you will never have a great company until you have a near-death experience. And I didn't grasp it at the time. I logged it away because I always listen, even when I might disagree uh, on issues. And uh, 2000, uh, uh, end of 2000 was going on, and our business wasn't hitting a bit, you know, uh, any bumps at all. Uh, the market was clearly had softened dramatically. I mean, dramatically. Our stock, I don't know, was off 30 or 40 percent, but our growth rate in the first week of December was still 70 percent. And over my 10 years of leading Cisco, we got so good at watching our pattern recognition, what was the same day last year, what was the same week, what was the same month, the same quarter. We could forecast a year's forecast, not next quarter, plus or minus 2%. So my data said Hmm. everything was fine. And the lesson learned was you can't depend just on data. You've got to put in these life's experiences, not on intuition, intuition, but experiences. By the middle of January, we were minus 30% decrease. We'd never been below 40% growth. And we didn't model for that. And uh, it, it became obvious to me this was more than a blip. I went out and spent two weeks on the road and came back and decided to completely change our company, size it to what the future would be, do what I taught others to do, which is determine how much self-inflicted, how much market, how long do you think it's last, how deep do you think it will be, make your changes one time if humanly possible, share very open with people uh, the changes needed, treat everybody like you'd like to be treated yourself. And I didn't even tell my board. I, I called up my team and told my management team to be in the office at 6.30 the next morning. I called them at 2 in the morning. And uh, we announced that afternoon we were going to restructure. This was a 100-year flood, uh, and we were going to make our changes very quickly. Uh, I got hammered in the market, as you can imagine, for that. Uh, 51 days, we had all the changes done. We treated the people like we'd like to be treated ourselves, although I thought I'd never have to do layoffs again. And we started gaining market share day 52, and it was a 100-year flood. And Jack Welch called me up at the end of 2001. He said, John, you now have a great company, and you're a great leader. I said, Jack, (laughs) my shareholders are not so sure I even should be running the company. (laughs) Even some people, especially in the press, who said I was very, very good are now saying the opposite. And it is painful beyond belief. You're probably going to be the only person to tell me that. And and he was. Uh, But I learned. And my competitors got destroyed. 
And the market cap, while ours went down, the market cap of my competitors went down 50% more, and nobody came hmm. back. Hmm. 2008, lesson learned. In the middle of 2007, my numbers were fine. Uh, a much bigger company by this time, growing well. Growth rates were about 40% on the quarter, if I remember right. Uh, but a blip, and we were well above forecast for the quarter and our forecast for the next quarter expected. But something happened in the financial community during the summer. All of a sudden, Mike, they slowed ordering dramatically. And I called up the CEOs and I said, hey, guys, something going on here. And they all said the same thing. No, John, we just started doing realigning for the future a little bit and just being a little bit conservative. You know, I'd seen this movie before. So on my conference call in August, I said, there's something wrong with the financial markets. Uh, this is a problem. And while we're going to hit our forecast this quarter and next quarter, I think there are some severe bumps coming. And as you know, within nine months, we were in free fall in the Great Recession. Yep. However, this time I was ready for it. I brought our expenses back in line before it became obvious to everyone else and did the opposite of what most people would have recommended. I wrote down $2 billion in inventory uh, losses in uh, 2001. I extended credit to the automotive companies for purchases at a time no one else did because they'd been great customers for me, and I felt that most of them would come through this, and I was going to be a great partner for them. And I took a risk again that could cost me my job. Hmm. And yet we blew through 2008 compared to everybody else. And we had that loyalty, especially out of automotive companies, that last 10 years later because I was there for them in a way no one else was. You build relationships for life. You take the risks. You go for it. And I could have been wrong, and I knew that. But connecting the dots, for me, it was the right thing to do And uh, because I've learned from my earlier mistakes. And by the way, if you're not making mistakes, you're not taking enough risk. And you probably won't survive. So it's how do you do that again and again? And people forget, you know, you name companies and you don't even remember them. A Nortel, they were an amazingly hmm. bigger company than us. And candidly, in the uh, service provider voice industry, and I caught them on a transition where voice was becoming free and fast forward, they're gone. And a Lucent and an Alcatel, a shadow of what they were before. So you've got to reinvent yourself, reinvent your company. You've got to take risk, and it could cost you your job. But not taking the risk is bigger and more important than uh, – I'm sorry. Taking the risk is much more important than not taking the risk. And that goes all the way back to forming the company. I almost cost myself the CEO position because I would not do what my board wanted me to do in terms of a very large acquisition. I wanted to go with the smaller one. And I was willing to bet my job. And mm. if they decide the other way, I told my wife we'd just have to live with it. But it was because of lessons learned that I knew what they were recommending was probably not the right way to go and that I felt there was a better way to go. And to their credit, they, they gave me the chance to execute that, although it would have cost me my job if I hadn't executed it well. John, a couple of really great examples that pivot off a point that you make at a number of uh, in a number of the chapters of the book, which is it is vital, whatever the crisis, whatever the moment, whatever the differences you might be having with the board, to stay calm, to keep focused, or to borrow the British phrase, keep calm and carry on. Where did that come from? How did you learn to be calm when everybody else is going a little bit nuts? Well, dad and mom taught me that. My dad, when he delivered 6,000 babies, 
uh, we were the answering service at home. This was before they really had that. And so he taught us very early on to listen very carefully and to then be able to convey the message to him uh, when he came home from wherever he was uh, that uh, on that and often your 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 uh, people who are going through labor are very excitable, but he said you got to listen even closer. The ones that are most mm-hmm. calm sometimes can be having the toughest time. So he trained me that when he taught me not to drown in a river. He taught me how to do it again and again, and 90% of the time I'm pretty calm under pressure. Often my friends will come to me, they're competitors or during college kids when they got into trouble saying, John, how would you handle this? Because first, it stayed between us, but secondly, I'd, I'd seen the movie and knew how important it was to stay calm and very focused and deal with the the world the way it is, not with the symptoms you see. And so many people deal with symptoms and make their moves one or two moves at a time, which, of course, Mike, is a recipe for failure. Yep. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and focus in on how you communicate your message to your employees, to customers, and well beyond. And to quote you back uh, to yourself here, uh, a great line. I'm going to draw upon this in my in my own MBA courses here at the Wharton School. It's hard to define where you are going if you can't explain where you are going. Uh, so what does it take just to pull that apart a little bit to persuasively sure. communicate where you're going in a way of people that can really appreciate and get on board with it? Well, communication is becoming not just an important ingredient of a CEO, but one of the four foundations of it. And we talked earlier about Jack Welch not necessarily being a great communicator. Uh, but communications is the key, uh, I think, in terms of uh, how you get to achieve those bold goals. It starts with the basics. I never make the first move on my changes until I've played the game out in my head, forwards and backwards, learning from what Henry Kissinger taught me about three different plans, the one that you want, an optimistic one, and the one that could be pessimistic. And because you've played the game through all three of them, your negotiations always end up being a combination. So before I make the first move, I write the press release. Here's what we want the end result to be. Cisco, we want it to be the company that changes the way the world works, lives, learns, and plays. Cisco, changing the definition of innovation from a company that did internal innovation to one that did acquisitions and investments and partnering. Uh, Cisco, one that would move into new markets and be one or two by using this combination of plays. And Cisco, the one that had the highest corporate social responsibility and employee morale and allowed us to be unbeatable. So I, I write the press release before I make the first move and do it on country digitization. You can imagine explaining in France or India what country digitization uh, that the government leaders is taking the organization to. What does it mean in terms of GDP, startups, smart cities, healthcare, education, geographic and gender inclusion, environment, etc., and then articulating what that means to them. So taking very complex topics and bringing it in a way that people grasp what does it mean. And what you see is I'm constantly weaving in lessons learned. President Clinton, smartest political leader I've ever met, very well read, but he taught me to always break questions into three pieces. And always when you deal with something, understand your opposition has good points, admit to that rather than fight the religious battle, and then focus on why your solution is better and what does it mean to people that listen. So as basic as it sounds, communications of what you're trying to do and make sure all your constituencies need to see it during not just good, bold times, but during the really tough times uh, are a key element. Well, along that line, you also make a related argument 
and I'll again quote you back uh, to yourself here. It's e- it's easier, you say, for people to understand a new strategy or a redirection when it's rooted in the culture of the company. And, of course, that puts a premium on your ability to connect the strategy to the culture and also to articulate the culture. It's one of the hardest concepts for people to get their hands around and for it to be put into words. So, John, what, what's your method for rooting change, redirection, strategy, and the like in your company's culture? Well, the way that you are articulated, let me go in reverse order. Uh, what I do with the startups is I remind them that the CEO's job is, number one, vision strategy for the company. Number two, develop, recruit, retain, and change the leadership team to implement that vision strategy. Number three, communications, which we just talked about. And number four, culture. It's usually the one the young CEOs struggle with the most. And candidly, when I became CEO, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it, although I was doing certain elements of the culture just naturally. As I began to see it evolve, I then realized how important it was and drove it through. So with my startups, I'll probably spend more time on culture than I do any other aspect of the roles of the CEOs. And it is so fun, Mike, and this is why I admire what you do as far as being a professor and teaching. When you see them really get it, and then you see them try it, and then you see them get rewarded, and it actually works, I mean, that's, that's what mm. makes your job and my job so much fun. Back to the culture. Uh, culture can be for good or for bad. Clearly, the example you used uh, with Uber was one where the culture was broken. The business model is brilliant, mm-hmm. but the culture is clearly broken. And uh, you also want to be realistic. You can't acquire a company with a different culture in this technology world. They've got to have similar cultures in order to survive uh, on it. So how do you teach it? How do you make it simple to understand? And how do you be self-enforceable? Third element is when somebody you're recruiting doesn't match your culture, I don't care how good they are, how smart they are, do not hire them. Mm. And teaching people to do that. And most of the time, I stayed with that pattern. When I acquired a company that had a little bit more different culture, or I brought somebody into the company that I didn't think was the right culture match, and I took a risk, I almost always regretted it. It's great. I want to remind leaders, uh, sorry, listeners, that you are listening to Leadership in Action. Uh, I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm the host this hour. We're talking with John Chambers, founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures and also author of Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World, much of which comes, of course, from his 24 years with uh, Cisco, uh, the great uh, Silicon Valley denizen there that has managed to survive in a world where many of its uh, competitors did not John, I'm going to begin to bring this to an end with a couple uh, pulling everything together questions. My first one is a question which I'm going to throw back at you, and I know you ask it yourself. What's the most important lesson that you have learned about leadership in your own career? Boy, there's so many. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Let's go for a couple. Bring it down to just two. Get market transitions right. Compete against market transitions, not competitors technology business. Um, the second is know what you know and know what you don't and get people around you who complement what you don't. And the third, you've got to be bold and you've got to take risk and means you're going to get knocked on your backside, which means it's going to be lonely. But if I were to shoot top three off the top of my head, that would be the three. That's great. And along that same line, I know you've had contact with many of the world's great leaders. You've got a long description of dinner at your home with uh, Shimon Perez of Israel. You've talked with uh, Jack Welsh and many others. 
Would you be willing to single out one or two people among the many, many leaders that you have met that really exemplify what you have developed in your book about connecting the dots? Well, Shimon Peres, I think, was the example of that as he transitioned to Israel, and he might be the greatest leader I've ever met, and how he did it first from defense and then from a startup nation and then for peace, and I work with him on everything from Palestine to the Middle East, et cetera. And I learned from him every single time we, we were together, <laughs> you know, from mm-hmm. reading the book when he came to my house the one night. This is when Israel was thinking about were they going to attack uh, Iran for the nuclear capabilities they were building. And so that night, even though we had a, mm-hmm. you know, about a dozen venture capitalists and some of the hottest startups here, and he was teaching us all, we had seven SWAT teams on the house all the way around us, et cetera. And, and uh, he was teaching us all that evening without a care in the world. And he basically said, John, you got an electric car. I want to go see it. And I said, your security team said, I cannot take you out of these two rooms. He said, John, I'm the president. Let's go. And uh, as we started down the elevator, one of his teams said, John, uh, he doesn't have a driver's license, hasn't driven in over a decade. I said, this is going to be really interesting. But I'm sure no matter what those SWAT teams prepared for, this was not one of them. But the takeaway there on the leadership even as much as he's accomplished, he cared tremendously about giving back, and he felt all people were equal. And it doesn't matter if we're in Upper Nazareth or Lower Nazareth together, people would come around him, the Jews, the Christians, the Arabs, with a, a sense of love. And he was constantly curious. So that would be probably the most, I think, teaching leader I've ever met. On the dreaming, uh, uh, it'd probably be Modi in India. I mean, his vision of a digital India, and he does his vision and strategy himself. Uh, he wakes up each morning, how does he make this inclusive across 29 states? Remember, an average state in India is 60 million people. And how does he do this differently? And he's fearless. Uh, Macron in France, we'll see, but I actually am very, very positive on him. The question is, will the French let him make the changes that needs to be made? And uh, I think France is, is too early to call, uh, uh, assuming Modi stays in position in India for this next election in this spring. Uh, I think he might go down as one of the greatest leaders in the world in terms of uh, economic and social change. Uh, France, I think, will be the leader in Europe on economic issues, but only if they continue to change and will they have the courage to continue to change as a country, and the, the jury is still out on that. John, this is great. I've got a more of a personal question now on coming from Shimon sure. Perez and what you have written about him. Uh, you do offer up that he's one of the most upbeat and optimistic people that you had ever met, and that's a statement because having watched you in action, you're also one of the most optimistic and upbeat individuals that I've ever had contact with. Thinking of Shimon Perez, give us a couple words to describe what it means to be optimistic. Let's break that down managerially. What does that mean? He he used similar words, and I'm sure I'm, I'm using them in part because of my exposure to him. First, he, he really would let himself dream, and I think that's important. You've got to be able to have that vision and strategy, and it needs to be almost dreamlike. The second thing is you've got to have the operational skills to implement that vision and strategy, and if you don't have those, you've got to get people around you who do. Third, you've got to be realistic of how hard it's going to be, and it will probably be harder. And fourth, you've got to realize it is going to be lonely. He taught me that. And boy, you talk about lonely in 2001. Mm. It is. 
Uh, and that's part of leadership, and you shouldn't be leading if you're not prepared for that last one. And even though he prepared me, I didn't realize how lonely it would be uh, on it. Yep. That's great. Quick question as we come to the very end here about JC2 Ventures. It mm-hmm. work, It works with startups that aren't necessarily the way some people would call a startup a startup. These are sometimes more than in very early-stage companies. In any case, though, your focus is help, helping them become disruptive before they are disrupted. What, what does that entail when you work with uh, maybe this could be the equivalent of yourself earlier in your career? What kind of advice do you pass to uh, those who are responsible for startups in a very difficult and sometimes threatening world? Well, the the good news is I get to uh, pick the pick of the litter from literally thousands of startups around the world, and and uh, they've been so kind to me that literally any startup that if I wanted to get involved with, they've been kind enough to say yes, hmm. and almost any financial terms within reason that I wanted to do. Uh, so I'm not sure I deserve that, but it is truly an honor and a responsibility. But what I really focus on is I am purely after disruptors. And number one and number two, lessons learned at Cisco, if you're number four or five, you probably don't survive. And I'm after just a wicked smart CEO that's smarter than me, that really wants to learn, that knows what they know and knows what they don't, and truly wants a coach, a strategic partner, and will listen to them. If they don't listen, I just fire them. I go on to the next one uh, on it. And uh, then I always go to customers. Uh, you know, I look for the customers to be their guiding light for how these companies evolve. So coaching those young CEOs I recognize some of my strengths and weaknesses in them, which makes it a little bit easier to understand. And it also makes it really fun. And I've learned I'm not part of management. I am their advisor and trusted Hmm. confidant, period. And I don't try to manage the deal for them. I I say, here are the trade-offs. I try to teach them as much as I can, reinforce the policies when they make mistakes. It is tough love. And I've learned to be very direct with the startups because their life expectancy is so short if they don't change. And so uh, that's kind of how I think about it. And and uh, I'm trying to do everything from solve world hunger with crickets to hmm. open transparent government with open gov to drone protection with D-drone uh, to focus on security with – uh, uh, a number of companies like Bravoro and a secure phone to pin drop of voice authentication to artificial <laughs> intelligence with spark cognition and companies like ASAP. Uh, all of them have common ingredients, world-class CEO, marketing transition, a chance to be one or two. Will a number of them fail? Of course. Does it break my heart when they do? Yes, it does. But I'm going to take more risk in this next role even than I did in the last, and I'm asking them to do the same. Yep. It's really interesting. And to pull apart two phrases here, you are involved with startups in their startup phase, but you also are very concerned about scaling. And often the people that can do the startup don't scale so well. Maybe Uber's a case in point on that. So as you move from this purely startup, early, very early stage experience of companies to one of scale, this was you when you were at Cisco, for example, in those early years. What are a couple of the most vital lines of advice that you would have for a CEO to make that transition without kicking himself or herself out? So um, just speaking mathematically, if you're a startup growing and you change the CEO, your odds of success get cut in half. Hmm. So you try not to pick one where you think the CEO cannot scale. Uh, That doesn't mean that they will, but you try not to do that. Uh, The second is you teach them all your lessons learned without it being a lecture. 
truly an interactive session and you let them draw you in for as much time. It's common for me to talk to some of my startups four to five times a week and then a couple of weeks without talking to them. But uh, it is more of a true mentoring. My skills are more in operation than scaling because, as you can imagine, taking it from you know, 400 people to 75,000, doing it in 18 different product functions, reinventing ourselves multiple times, scaling is what I've learned, and 180 acquisitions, you know how to help them scale. So that's where probably my greatest value to them is uh, in terms of lessons learned, and I just walk them through that. On and most of them, candidly, are, are smarter in the technology than I am and uh, understand uh, the technology difference, although I can dig into it and talk to customers about it. It, I usually pick somebody who really gets that pretty cold, but it, it is so fun. And much like you're teaching, when you yep. watch them be successful, it is a rush like nothing else, isn't it? Uh, totally, totally. John, thank you. This has been great. I've got a final going away question for you as follows. If you take yourself sure. back in your own life to, let's say, your undergraduate days or your MBA days, but it's pre-IBM, it's pre-Wang, and it's pre-Cisco and JC2, uh, what advice would you have to a listener who is somewhere in those early years, as you were at one point, that would lead them to benefit of uh, from uh, well what you've been through and, and the wisdom of your thinking? So what advice would you have for somebody just beginning fresh out of college, maybe fresh out of an MBA program? Okay. I would hit them right in front of college or during the programs. I would say focus on market transitions. Hmm. I would also really challenge them. I don't think most of your best students will go to big companies or large government. I think they'll go to startups. Polytechnique, for example, in France, 80% of the engineers now go in France to startups. Hmm. Five years ago, it wasn't 10 or 15. You see the same thing out of Stanford and other great schools, Wharton, et cetera. Uh, so I would prepare myself for entrepreneurship. Even if I were in an area that might not be as tied to technology, I would absolutely learn technology and what artificial intelligence will do. It will not only live up to its expectations, in my opinion, I think it's going to have an impact far beyond what people are grasping on automation, et cetera, on it. And then I would focus on security. So if you really want to an approach and capability on that, that would be the unique approach. Uh, I think you already know this, you know, a person with a PhD out of a, one of the top schools back here on the East Coast probably uh, goes for a million a year on a, uh, uh, in terms of their, their cost to an employer. So, uh, again, if you combine those three fields, you could write your own ticket. Great. John, thank you so much. If somebody would like to learn more about JC2 Ventures or about you, they know where to buy the book, of course, Connecting the Dots, but how would they learn more about JC2 Ventures and about you? Just follow us on Twitter, uh, follow us on LinkedIn or Facebook. I, I post to all three, uh, obviously appealing to a little bit different audience, Twitter, the more political side, LinkedIn, more the career side, Facebook, more the community. Uh, and you can just track what I'm doing along that line. I'm reinventing myself on how I communicate. I used to do it all physically 10 years ago. Now 90% is uh, virtual. John, John Chambers, thank you so much for joining the program today. Mike, it was a blast. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.